Heavenly Father, we, we thank you for the opportunity to be able to be here this morning to worship you, um, to be able to start uh, this ministry, uh, Operation Christmas Child. And um, Lord, I pray for creativity as we do our shopping. I pray that we would uh, honor uh, Samaritan's Purse by following the instructions that they work painfully um, and give us clearly. And uh, I pray that it, it wouldn't just be about getting a box filled, but that we would really take this to heart and be praying over these boxes and for the little hands that will open them. And uh, we pray for uh, missionaries that go with Operation Christmas Child as well as many local churches that are connected um, or, or that are in areas where many of these children receive these um, these Christmas gifts. Father, we pray that you would stir up new life in these hearts, that they would understand their their plight uh, in their sin, just like ours. They're, they're precious children, and it's a precious video, and we want to bless them richly. And just like all of our wonderfully precious, cute kids, they um, are entrenched in their own sin and in need of a Savior. And Lord, that's our eternal prayer for them that they would realize their need for you and turn from their sin and trust you, uh, the greatest gift in the entire universe who came to seek and save the lost. And so we pray that to that end. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, I want to ask you to open your Bibles, if you will, or your Bible app to the book of 1 John, not the Gospel of John, but this is right before uh, Jude and Revelation. Uh, it's just a couple of pages, it's five chapters, um, but it's probably about uh, uh, two uh, or three, four pages in your Bible itself toward the back of your Bible there. Uh, you'll have 1 John, 2 John, 3 John, Jude, and Revelation. So we're opening up to 1 John uh, this morning and uh, going to be looking at the first few verses there as we begin uh, a, um, probably a fairly swift study through this, um, through this book. So as you're turning, I want to ask you a question. Have you ever witnessed an event and knowing exactly how you experienced it, right? You witnessed something happen. And as you hear other people talking about it, you hear them talking and you think, now, wait a minute, that's not how that happened. You know, uh, I was um, in high school in Alaska and uh, we had a volcano that uh, erupted. And for a couple days after the volcano erupted, Uh, It was just raining ash for days. I mean, it was dark. It was thick. We weren't allowed to go out of the house. And and sometimes you hear people talking about that that weren't there. And and I would just remember thinking, no, I remember the masks that were delivered to homes and the ways that we had to live for that immediate couple weeks when all of that ash, which is not healthy to be breathing in, uh, was raining down like literal rain, like snow falling. Uh, where I live, just outside of Anchorage, Alaska. And, uh, and so you hear people talk about something that you were there for, and it doesn't jive, and you think, you know, well, wait, you, in some ways you want to clarify what, what happened, right? And this is what happens in the churches throughout Asia Minor toward the end of the first century, when First John was written, uh, at the very end of the first century, AD, 
uh, 80 to 95 AD, right? There were, uh, the church, uh, the church was, was growing. The church had experienced some persecution and, and there were some who were leaving the church. Many were leaving the church and they were taking their followers with them. First John two nineteen tells us because they're in that church and in that time, uh, or I should say in those churches, there was an intentional deception going on. They were not speaking the truth about who Jesus was. And uh, they denied that Jesus was the Christ. They didn't deny Jesus, but they denied that he was Christ, the Son of God. And later this comes to be known uh, as what we call today as Gnosticism. Um, And so as they were doing that, they were acknowledging Jesus as historical, but they denied his his deity, or specifically the fact that it was uh, it was Jesus, the God Man in bodily form, because at least in part, and this is a sixty thousand foot flyover, at least in part they believe no, there, there's no way God would send His Son because the Earth is too evil, right? Well, they had half of the answer right, right? The Earth is evil. But yes, God did send his son in the person of Jesus Christ. And so there was all kinds of confusion going on inside of the church, right? Uh, Many normal Christians were asking questions like, well, what is Christianity after all? Is belief in Jesus Christ essential to to the highest form of Christianity? Is Christianity Christ? And if not, well, then what is Christianity? And if Christ is essential to Christianity, then Exactly what is one to believe about this Jesus? And so John, who writes the same John that wrote the Gospel of John, 1 John, 2 John, 3 John, and he wrote the book of Revelation. And so this same John is writing here. It's, a, it's an epistle. Actually, the way it's written, some have a difficult time trying to figure out whether to call it an epistle. It's, it's not structured exactly like some of the epistles we're used to writing. You'll notice there's no uh, normal greeting that like we would see from the hand of Paul and that sort of thing. That kind of stuff is, is missing from it. You know, there's no grace and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I'm John writing to you with life-giving truth, right? I mean, he just launches right in to what his message is. He kicks down the door with this incredible run-on sentence. In the original Greek, it's one long sentence, and he exclaims the essence of Christianity, which is Jesus Christ. And we'll read that in a moment, but first, I want you to see four keys and three avenues of assurance. As we look at 1 John, we see this phrase, I am writing these things to you, or I write to you, or we are writing to you. And he gives four keys to understanding John's purpose for writing. The first is that the family of God would experience full joy through fellowship with the Father and one another through Jesus Christ. I mean, that's his, that's the passion that he wakes up for in the morning. Sometimes when you're thinking about what to do with your life, somebody that might be asking you questions to try to help you might say, what do you wake up thinking about? And what keeps you up at night? Well, the gospel of Jesus is what it was for John. In John 2, first, I'm sorry, first John 2, 1, he wrote, uh, he says, to prevent sin in the family of God. I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. The third key to understanding it is he writes to protect them from those who are trying to deceive them. And then in chapter 5, he writes to give those who believe in Jesus Christ assurance of salvation. Danny Aiken refers to it as three avenues of assurance, right belief in Jesus, right obedience to God's commands, and right love for 
one another. So 1 John is a wonderful letter, brothers and sisters. It is a very strong proclamation about the essence of Christianity. Have you ever noticed, maybe sometimes uh, in a conversation with somebody, you, 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 you maybe begin to talk about the gospel of Jesus Christ. You begin to talk about the Lord. You begin to talk about the Lord's work in someone's heart and how the Lord or how somebody understands the Bible or, or biblical truth or Jesus. And, and, and you get to these initial statements about Jesus. Like, I believe in Jesus and I believe that he's God. A lot of people talk about baby Jesus. Um, and to them, he's baby Jesus for all of their, you know, mental understanding of, of who he is. But as you start to, to dig and kind of dive under the surface a little bit, their understanding of Jesus uh, just seems to dwindle very, very quickly. When hard things in life happen, they can't imagine that God would allow, you know, whatever it might be to happen. There, it's a real challenge to think about God as God relates himself to us in the Bible. And that's true of people's understanding of Jesus at times. And so imagine, even a church you know, like ours, uh, not our church specifically, but a church like ours where people are meeting and, and people are hearing these uh, heretical false teachers. I'm not talking about somebody that has a, you know, a, a difference on something. I'm talking about intentionally ungodly, unsaved people talking about heresy. Okay, and, and that kind of stuff is coming in the church. And the church is meeting together and starting to ask these questions like, well, what is the essence of Christianity? And, and, and people are starting to get confused. Well, I think John does what, uh, what any, any good and right pastor would do in this sense. He writes them this letter. And I just think of this letter as kind of kicking down the door and coming in and saying, let me just tell you how this is. Let me tell you, declare these truths to you about Jesus. And so we'll read this in 1 John 1, 1 through 4. John says, that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon, and we have touched with our hands concerning the word of life. The life was made manifest, and we have seen it, and we testify it, and we proclaim to you the eternal life, which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. That which we have seen and heard, we proclaim to you so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. And we are writing these two things to you so that our joy may be complete. Fellowship with the Father and with one another through Christ brings true eternal joy. That's the essence of Christianity is that fellowship with the Father and with one another, which is only made possible through our relationship with Jesus Christ, is what brings true eternal joy. Sometimes we get into the wrong pattern of thinking if we invite people to the church, that will uh, get them to hear the gospel message. And certainly we pray that that's always the case, right? We want to preach the gospel clearly and openly and unapologetically. But at the end of the day, in our conversations with your friends, with your family members, with your neighbors, God has given each one of us a particularly unique uh, circle of influence to be able to give your own personal testimony. That sounds like a very Christian term, but if you think about the word testimony in a legal sense, it's someone who is going on record saying, let me tell you about how God has changed my life through Jesus Christ. People are usually fine to talk about God in a general sense. They often mean God with a lowercase g, not the God of the Bible. But when we get specific and we begin to talk about Jesus, 
Well, Jesus is where the dividing line comes. And our, our, our goal is not to offend people, but the gospel message is offensive to people. Even when shared with uh, a, 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 a pleasant smile and kind mannerisms and even warm hospitality, sometimes you get to talking about the specifics of who Jesus is. Most people are fine to have a helper, but a savior... Well, Savior means that I'm in need of help and I have to have someone save me. Well, that's exactly the gospel message. But many times people don't want to hear that. The essence of Christianity is realized in Jesus. In Jesus. If you were to take any sport right now, uh, or, or, well, I guess I'm going to go to football because that's just where I go. But, um, you know, if you were to talk about the game of football and you just mentioned pigskin, everybody knows pretty much what you're talking about. You're talking about football. Are there other things that are ever made with pigskin? Sure. But in our culture, in our context, this is not true of every context, you mention pigskin and people think of football. What are some aspects of your life that you know there's one, one word, one phrase, one, one, one topic that just sort of like sums up the whole? Well, with Christianity, it's Jesus Christ. It's Jesus Christ. And he begins with an interesting choice of word. He begins with that which was. And that's interesting because if we think about John speaking about the person of Jesus, why would he start with a word like that rather than he? Isn't that interesting? He, he which was from the beginning, which we have heard and, and whom we have seen with our eyes, whom we have looked at and, and whom we have touched with our hands concerning the word of life. But he doesn't. He begins with that which was from the beginning. We think about what's very simple in Genesis. That's in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. I mean, we all know that's not simple because we couldn't do that ourselves. But it's stated quite simply. This is more profound, more complex in John 1, 1, not 1 John 1, 1, but in John 1, 1, where he says, in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. And we know just a few verses later, John makes it very clear that he's referring to Jesus. The word became flesh and dwelt among us, verse 14. And so here, John goes uh, in this pastoral letter. He goes from that which was in eternity past, preexistent, always existing, into immediately into presence, into the physical realm, into the, the incarnate God became flesh. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard and we've seen with our eyes, We've, we've touched with our hands concerning the word of life. In fact, I think it's the NIV that gets it closest here with a capital W on word. My translation, the ESV has a lowercase w on word concerning the, the word of life, the logos. That word can mean uh, word, statement, or message. And it is applied to Jesus in the gospel of John. And here, translations differ a little bit. It doesn't make a, a huge, uh, uh, doesn't really make much of a difference on their understanding of the text uh, or of the meaning of the text. But if, you're, if your translation has a capital W, your translators are communicating 
that we believe this is referring specifically to the person of Jesus. John's subject is eternal. And because God was the subject, uh, he existed before everything else, and he is the source, and he is the basis of all things. And so then he says, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked at, looked upon, and have touched with our hands. He's saying, this is not hearsay, right? Like, like my little story of, of being in Alaska with that volcano raining ash for days. Like I was there for that. I remember that. I experienced that. John is saying, I, we, the, the apostolic tradition, the apostles, we experienced this and we're passing down to you no mere tradition. We're passing down to you the one we interacted with, the one we brushed shoulders with. He's real and he's God. You can be absolutely confident that what we're telling you is true. It's the weighty words of an eyewitness account. He's not speaking of a myth. He's not speaking of clever storytelling just to get people's attention. He carefully studied and he knew about whom he spoke. Very similarly, uh, sort of like what Paul says in 2 Corinthians 4 2, he says, we've renounced disgraceful underhanded ways and we refuse to practice cunning or to tamper with God's word. But by open statement of truth, we commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. Essentially, he's saying, we're not trying to really get creative with the gospel. I didn't take public speaking 101 to figure out that I need to have a hook Hook, book, look, took, you know, creative ways of teaching the Bible, which is actually a very helpful book, by the way. But the point is, we're just proclaiming the gospel to you. And God working through the Holy Spirit, through the message that God called us to declare, is how God changes lives and how God changes people. And that, that's simply what we're doing. We're not trying to get crafty. We're not trying to get clever. And he's going right after this Gnosticism. He's going right after this, this heresy that was creeping into the church and that was damaging the church. He says, I saw him, I heard him, I studied him, I touched him. And then he goes on this next phrase, concerning the word of life. I mentioned a minute ago, it's the same, the word logos spoken of in John 1, 1. And he says, this logos that you've been talking about, this word you've been talking about and writing about, for century. Well, he came and we heard him. We saw him. We interacted with him. We studied him. We touched him. And let me tell you about him. This word of life was manifested, was, was given to us, was made visible to us. He's physically real. He affirms what Paul says in Colossians 1.15. It uses the word he, but speaking about Jesus is the image of the invisible God the firstborn of all creation. In the Old Testament, in Micah, Micah 5.2, we read this often at, at Christmas time or in Advent. But you, O Bethlehem Ephratah, to you who are too little among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth one for me who is to be ruler 
of Israel, whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient days, the eternally preexistent God-man, Jesus Christ, who would be not created, but given. When Mary gave birth to him, he came, he's real, his ministry is real. And John, John just can't come in lightly and say, with an introduction, grace and peace to you from God our Father. I hope everybody's having a good week. Let me pontificate on Jesus, the God-man. First words, that which was from the beginning, which we've seen, which we've touched, which we, you get the idea. He comes right at it. Why? Because he's got a pastoral passion to equip them in truth. He's got a pastoral passion to help these Believers who are being deceived by heresy. And heresy is the key word. Christians proclaim one message. We proclaim one truth. That a relationship with Jesus Christ and his church brings true eternal joy. Only a relationship with Jesus, not knowing about Jesus, not hearing of Jesus, not, not sitting in the place where you hear the gospel preached, even regularly. No, you must have a personal encounter with the living God. And that is only possible through Jesus Christ. Uh, theologian John Stock calls it the authority of commission, meaning Jesus Christ appointed the apostles to proclaim good news about his life and teaching and death and resurrection. And their king had given them a message to proclaim. And as ambassadors for Christ, they had no freedom to mess with the message. They had no freedom to try to make it creative, to try to make it more palpable to people's ears, to try to uh, make it sound better. No, the message is the message. God's fine with his message in saving people. And so there's an invitation here. An invitation to true eternal joy. Now, I want, I want to ask you to just listen for a minute here. When you think about your relationship with Jesus, I want to ask you if you tend to think about what you should do or if you think about the joy of fellowshipping with him. Because I know I can tend to get into a certain rut where I'm feeling guilty because I haven't spent enough time in the Bible or I'm feeling guilty because of all the many, 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 many things that I'm not doing right or I'm not doing well enough. When really what God wants is for all of his children to enjoy fellowship with him. To enjoy reading his word. To acknowledge Lord, I'm open in my Bible right now, but I'm really not feeling it. And I just need your help. So I just acknowledge I'm distracted. My, my mind is set on things of the world. My mind is focused on other things that I feel like I need to be doing right now. But what I really need, what I really want, even though I don't feel like it right now, is to fellowship with you to sit with you, to talk with you. And sometimes as, as, a, as Christians, we walk around with this cloud of guilt and shame 
that God does not intend for us. God wants us to experience joy. I don't mean simple, happy, happy, joy, joy kind of joy. I mean deep, abiding joy through the trenches of life. God says, I'm there with you. I got you. I want you to experience me in this. I want you to know me in this. That's why in in, uh, in 2 Peter 1, he says, Peter says, His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and, and excellence. I'd love to keep reading the rest of that, but I, I, I can't for time's sake. But that's a knowledge that is, you think of it in two ways. There's two sides of the same coin. There's a cognitive head knowledge of knowing who God is, but there's an experiential knowledge that comes only when we walk in fellowship with him. You can know about your spouse. You can know about your neighbor, but only through a regular, frequent interaction are you able to grow in that relationship. And it's really what we all crave. Every one of us in here craves it. I don't know if you've ever had a conversation who was uh, hurt by someone. And in their hurt, uh, they sometimes will spend, I mean, invest quite a bit of effort telling you how they're not hurt. Have you ever been a part of that conversation? I'm laughing because we all do it. So I'm not laughing at people who are hurting. I'm saying we all crave these relationships that God made us for, that God created us for. And yet sometimes the very relationships that are intended to be the nearest and dearest to us, we're actually afraid of pushing into for I'm going to say fill in the blank here. It could be for many reasons. It could be for fear of ultimate rejection. What if I do my part and then I get rejected? What do you do at that point? And we transfer that same kind of thought into our relationship with the Lord sometimes. And so we live this Christian life feeling disenfranchised. Well, Jesus is not really working for me. It's probably the most frequent extra biblical quote that I ever use GK Chesterton, who said the Christian life has not been tried and found wanting. In other words, Christian life has not been found to be applied. And God was just wrong. God says, Hey, I want you to experience joy. Oops. I was wrong. I guess I can't keep my promises. No. He says the Christian life hasn't been tried and found wanting. It has been found difficult and left untried. Sometimes the very easiest thing for us seems to be the hardest thing for us to do. And so he's inviting his hearers, the church, to to come into or to continue in fellowship with God the Father through Jesus Christ. One commentator said, this is one of the greatest statements of the New Testament. And it might be safely said that its greatness is created by the richness of the word, which is the emphatic word, fellowship, right? It's the Greek word uh, koinonia, right? Which just really has the, carries the idea of having all things in common. 
Uh, Acts 2.44 is helpful. Now all who believed were together and they had all things in common. It's a different form of the word koinonia. Those who have fellowship with one another are those who share the same resources and they are bound by the same responsibility. It's almost overwhelming, overwhelming when it's applied to the relationship that believing souls bear to the Father and His Son, Jesus Christ. All of the resources that we just read in Second Peter in God are ours to enable us to enjoy that relationship to its fullness. And what's the end of it? The ultimate end, true joy. True eternal joy. Joy on this earth and joy for eternity in heaven. Jesus said in Matthew 6, 33, Seek ye first the kingdom of God, and all these things will be added to you. Sometimes we set our sights on the wrong goal to seek. Sometimes we set our sights on the wrong pursuit. It, it may be a good pursuit, Underneath the surface, we may even think it's a, it's, a, uh, it's a godly goal. And while it may be a godly goal, very oftentimes God wants that goal to actually be the fruit of the real goal, which is just enjoying fellowship with him. If we abide in Christ, he abides in us and the fruit is born. Sometimes we think of the, the Holy Spirit as one who, if you go up to those uh, automatic sinks, and, and they're all different sorts, or maybe it's the blowers on the wall after you wash your hand in a public restroom or something like that. You go up to those sinks, and the water's supposed to turn on. Have you ever done that, and it doesn't work? You know what I'm talking about? You, you walk up to it, and you like, turn, turn on. And you're, you know, you're just trying to get it to work, and then somebody else walks in, and you look like a total buffoon. You know how to make this thing work? Just put your hand under it. Let me tell you what I've been doing the last five minutes. But there is a difference between putting your hand under the faucet to make it turn on and just washing your hands and it turns on. Try it next time. Don't try to turn it on. Just get the soap on your hands. That may take faith. You're like, well, this is going to look weird when I have to just wipe the soap off on my own clothes. No, put the soap on your hands and then just wash your hands and it'll turn on. Rather than trying to, 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 to squeeze the fruit out of the Holy Spirit, rather than try to, to get God to do what we think we need him to do right now in this time, in my day, for this moment, just enjoy fellowship with the Father through the working of the Holy Spirit by the power of the Son of God, Jesus Christ. And the fruit will come. Just fellowship. Just enjoy God. Seek to understand where you're not enjoying the things that God says we ought to enjoy. And then maybe rather than trying to enjoy those things, just enjoy God. And see what he does. Because I agree with G.K. Chesterton that it is that the Christian life has been found difficult and left untried. Fullness of joy, that's the result. 
It, it is challenging, though, to try to communicate to a neighbor or a family member the joy of coming to, into a relationship with God through Jesus Christ when you're not actually sure you enjoy it yourself. If you feel like it's rules and regulations, I had a phone conversation with a friend, and listen, let me tell you, we live in the days of, uh, of digital trackers or planners with trackers on them. You know, you just have a planner, and it's got, you know, 30 or 60 numbers on it, and every day that you don't eat where you're not supposed to eat, or every day that you do the number of push-ups or sit-ups you say you're going to do, you check it off on there. And you're like, yes, I'm on eight days. Somehow, for some reason, when that same principle of self-discipline is imported into the Christian faith, all of a sudden, we don't want to be trackers. All of a sudden, I don't want to just check off a box. I mean, I think if God says, hey, check off this box for today, like we're okay to just check off the box for the day. There's something about the discipline of faithfulness and, and using tools and helps to help us get there. But I would agree don't make that the priority. I love to read and study the Bible and, and I wrestle with some of the same things in my own heart where there are many days, many times where I don't. Or I want to get into study mode, but not personal application mode. So I don't want to make myself sound like I'm more spiritual than you are because I'm not. But there are times when I just need to put away the Bible that has my notes in it or my highlights in it, and I just need to get a Bible that doesn't have any markings on it, and I just need to read. I just need to be with the Lord. And I just need to talk to the Lord. I just need to pour out my heart to the Lord, which we're able to do because we have Jesus. We're in Christ. Everything that is God's for his people is ours in Christ. Brother, sister, you are able to do more than you ever would imagine is possible in your life if you would just focus on... Enjoying Jesus. The growth will come as you send out roots to eternal streams of living water. Water. Less focused on the circumstance, more focused on the fellowship with our Savior. I want to close with a few scriptures. John echoes this idea that Jesus brings out before his disciples the night before his crucifixion in the gospel of John. And he wanted fullness of joy for them. Jesus wanted that for his disciples. And he says these three things, John 15, 11, these things I've spoken to you that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. You don't have joy? You go to Jesus and ask him for his joy. Lord, I know you got enough. Because you say that my joy can be full. And I want what you want. John 16, 24, until now you've asked me nothing in my name. Ask and you will receive that your joy may be full. John 17, 13, but now I'm coming to you and these things I've spoken, I speak in the, and these things I speak in the world that they, speaking to the Father about his disciples, may have joy fulfilled in themselves as a body of believers working together, growing together for the faith. 
So how is John's joy, as he says in verse 4 here, made complete in writing these things? Well, 1 John, 2 John, 3 John are often sort of a package deal. And he says, I have no greater joy than this, to hear of my children walking in the truth. Than to hear of my children walking in the, in the truth. Just f- flipping the page one page forward. We're not going to study this right now, but he says, I'm writing to you little children because your sins are forgiven for his name's sake. I'm writing to you fathers because you know him who is from the beginning. I'm writing to you young men because you have overcome the evil one. I write to you children. Do you hear this endearing language of love that the apostle John is using to refer to those whom he's pastorally caring for? I write to you, fathers, because you know him who's from the beginning. I write to you, young men, because you are strong and the word of God abides in you and you have overcome the world. Brothers and sisters, you are in Christ. And while you are still here in the world, you are not of the world, but you have overcome the world. Because Jesus has overcome the world. We sang just uh, not long ago, Lord, I'm amazed by you. And that song can sort of go, Lord, I'm amazed by you. Can't it? And this song repeats a lot. That's what you do when you stand in awe and wonder. God, I know my sin. My sin is ever before me, and I am amazed how you've loved me. John says, come. Enjoy fellowship with the Father through the Son and with the body of Christ. Enjoy fellowship so that our joy may be complete and so that you might take up the same burden and maybe you write a similar card, a similar letter to one struggling in the faith one day and say I have no greater joy than to see you walking in the truth it delights my soul